Man, it's good to see you guys. A lot of new faces today. How you guys doing? Welcome to New City. Yeah, um, excited you guys are here. Thank you, Austin. Appreciate that. Yeah, so um, if you're just joining us, we're in a series called Rooted, and, um, and I'm excited to dive into that. Before I do, just a brief intro of who we are. New City is a family of communities on mission um, here in San Diego. We gather together on Sunday, and we decided to do Sundays a little different. Instead of just gathering together and calling Sundays church, we believe that the church is the people of God on the mission of God. And so we use Sundays to really try to empower the work of God in community throughout the week. So we're stoked that you guys are here joining us. We're using this series to really help equip the saints of New City to really live out this identity that we have in Christ as disciple makers. And, and so one of the best ways that we know to make disciples is not by just getting people to change their behavior, right? Because you can get people to change their behavior. You can say, don't do this. Do this all day till you're blue in the face, but never actually have heart change and life change with people. And so we're using this time over the next few weeks in this series, Rooted, um, to really examine what we truly believe at a heart level, what our actions and our attitudes are rooted in deep within our heart so that we can experience life change and joy and all that stuff. So I'm excited to invite you guys into that. If you're new here, we'd love for you to fill out one of these Connect cards. It's uh, a yellow thing. It looks similar to that. If you can fill that out, we have a gift for you today. Um, We'd love for you to walk away with. And uh, we'd love to get you connected to those missional communities because that's where church kind of happens for us throughout the week out on mission. Sound good? I'm Vince. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Good to see you guys. Um, We're diving into uh, this this part of the series, this second installment, so to speak. Last week, we talked about who God is as Father, the Father heart of God. And we talked about the prodigal son, that famous story, and how we all kind of see ourselves a little bit in that story. And yet, as as far as we've run from God, as much as we've broken his heart, as, as broken as our lives have become, it's amazing what happens when we return home, isn't it? That the father comes chasing us down the road, throws his arm around, uh, arms around us, throws a ring on our finger, a robe on our back, and loves us and calls us son. He doesn't call us servant. He doesn't say, once you get your act together and you really prove to me how good you are, then maybe I'll accept you back into home. But no, he brings him right in, kills the fatted calf, calls him son, throws a party. And that, that's the father heart of our God, isn't it? Amen. Cool. I see a lot, of, a lot of people that are not sure if they should say yes out loud. <laughs> like, yes, and just kind of whisper it. So welcome. Yeah, we, we love feedback. So we're going to ask some questions here in the beginning of the sermon and, and things like that. And we would love for you guys to engage with that and answer and, and dialogue and discuss certain things. In fact, last week it wasn't even much of a sermon, was it? It was basically you guys preached the sermon. It was really cool. We, we threw some questions out there. And the crowd and the audience kind of preached it. This week, what I'm going to do is a little different. We're going to just follow the fruit-to-root diagram that we did last week, but I'm just going to follow it through a sermon kind of a series, uh, a sermon kind of an outline. And so I'm going to start with kind of how we live, what beliefs that's rooted in, and work our way to truth about who God is and how we could be living. So you'll see that as we go along. Um, let me just say a quick word of prayer, and then we're going to dive in. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you that while we were far away from you, while we were enemies, um, you loved us. You sent your son to call us back to you. Thank you that the truth of you as Father is such a powerful truth, a life-changing truth if we bring it into our hearts and live out of it the truth of who we are in you, that we are loved. The most foundational truth, core truth of who we are is that in Jesus Christ, we are loved by you. I pray that if we get nothing else out of today, we wouldn't forget that, that we would leave here knowing we're loved by the God of the universe. But thank you also that that's not the end of who you are, that's just the beginning that there's so much more to discover about who you are and about who we are in you. And I pray that today you would 
Open our eyes, lift the veil, help us to see you more clearly. Help us to see you in your glory and your grace. Let chains that have bound our life be broken today. Let people leave here free and full of your spirit. I pray that your grace would just sweep through this, this, this group today as we gather together in your name. And Holy Spirit, I pray you would open our hearts to understand your truth at a deeper level. Apply it to us. Help us to leave here differently than we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, so the, the truth of God being Father is a powerful truth, but it's incomplete if we just stop there. There's so much more to be said about who God is. So today we're moving on to God as a son. Okay, so, and then I bet you can't guess what next week's going to be about. God as Father, God as Son. What do you think next week is? Oh, yeah, it's going to be awesome. So, but today um, we're going to focus on God as Son. And I have a subtitle that um, you can throw up there, and it is You, you go ahead, I haven't clicked. You, you got served. So, and that's going to make more sense as we go on. But everybody say, You got served. All right, we're going to dive right into this, and, um, and I'm excited about it. And this, this truth is so important because we live in a culture that's very individualistic, don't we? Living at, I mean, we see it everywhere around us. We see it even within us. And one of the things that leads to is a radical kind of a self-focused life. We see people all around us in our society where, you know, if we sang opera still, like that song we'd be singing is me, 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 right? Because it's about my life, my way, my beliefs, my hopes, my vision, my dreams, especially here in a place like San Diego. You know, downtown San Diego is 78% single. So there's a lot of people that there's hope for you if you're <laughs> There's a, there's a lot of people that live here in San Diego, like my friend Ben, who I was hanging out with this week at Noble Experiment. He's a, he's a first-class bartending manager, and I said, hey, man, so tell me about your you know, time throughout the week. Like, where do you get community? And he said, that's a cool, good question, man. Um, well, after work, I go to Turf Club and hang out with other bartenders. And I was like, okay, yeah, where else? Uh, wake up and go to Counterpoint sometimes. And get a drink with people. It's like, so there's a lot of drinking going on. Yeah. yeah. I was like, where else? He's like, man, not, actually, there's not a heck of a lot of community here in, like, downtown and the surrounding areas. And I asked him, I said, how, how does that affect you? How do you think that affects people? He's like, honestly, man, it's pretty lonely. It's pretty lonely. I feel pretty isolated. So we see this radical individualism in our society leading to a sense of longing and even loneliness at times, right, with so many people. I even know people who are married and living in a life surrounded with other people, yet still feeling deeply lonely. And then that leads to this kind of self-centered, well, the self-centered and brokenness leads to the loneliness. So let me ask you guys a question as we kick this off. What are some ways in our society that you've seen self-centeredness kind of show up? Where's some self-centeredness you see around you, maybe in the headlines or at work this week? Where, where do you see self-centeredness show up in our culture? Anybody? Selfies. <laughs> Selfies. Selfie sticks. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. What else? Ashley. Hmm. It's the year of you. If last year you didn't get enough of yourself, this year there's hope. The year of you. Yeah, what else? Marco. Cowboy mentality? Explain that one. Lones yeah, the lonesome cowboy riding out into the range, sense of adventure, empty horizons, everything is possible. And grab a Marlboro on your way out. Yeah. Yeah, what else? Tom? Yeah, I mean, for me, I'm just, I don't need anyone's help. Mm. I don't need to rely on anybody. I don't need help. I can do this. I got this. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps, put myself through college. You know, this, this finances I have, they're mine. Yeah, David. Uh huh. 
<laughs> yeah, there's no taking turns, right? If there's a good serve spot, the surfers, yeah, it's mine, and I'm taking the next wave too, as long as I can get there in time. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's dream is to be your own boss, right? I'm special. That's, that's kind of our slogan for our generation. I'm very special. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I got to figure it out on my own. Yeah, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, anybody else? A couple more? I saw a couple more hands. Yeah, Austin. We're so non Oh, yeah. <laughs> Did you guys hear that? So on Facebook, the events used to say going, not going, not sure, and now they just say I'm interested. It's even more ambiguous. That's hilarious. Yeah, we're non-committal, right? Hey, man, can you help me move Saturday? Dude, you know what? I'm really interested now. Let me check my calendar and get back to you. Yeah, yeah, we don't like to commit, especially in SoCal. Right? That's, a, that's a big part of our culture. Those of you who have moved here from other parts of the country, you know SoCal is very non-committal. And even when you do get those commitments, somebody's like, I'll be there. And then it's like 10 minutes later, you're, you're texting them, hey, man, where are you? you know? Oh, something came up. I'm sorry, man, I'm not going to be able to make it. That's SoCal. It never happens in Indiana, right? <laughs> Nobody commits to anything, but when they do, they actually show up. Yeah, so... So that's a bit of our culture. Well, the, the thing is, like, um, I was talking to somebody the other day who's a teacher, and they were saying, yeah, I'm sick of the individualism in our culture. You know what we need? You know, we need to look to the East. Because back where we came from, the older cultures, people got community, you know? And so they're, like, preaching the gospel of community, which I love community. Don't get me wrong. But then here was the answer. We need more collectivism. That's what we need. We need, you know, one of my favorite uh, movie directors, is uh, his name is Park Chan-wook. And then I went to look him up, and I couldn't find him forever. And I found out I was saying his name wrong. On all the DVD covers, it said Park Chan-wook. He's Korean. But his real name is Chan-wook Park. He put his last name first because in his culture, that's what you do. You put your family before yourself. And if you go to cert, you know, you don't get the option to join the military. You just do. Everybody joins the military because the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And there is some beauty and truth in that. But if we're not careful, we'll swing to another extreme to try to fix the radical individualism that we have by saying collectivism is going to be our savior. And collectivism can't save us, can it? The truth is our founding fathers, when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, said that everybody's entitled to, to the rights of what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness these inalienable rights, they're, they're basically building our country on individualism because they came from countries where collectivism had so taken over that individual rights were squashed, that you were just a blank face. It didn't matter what you wanted. What matters is what the government needs. We still see countries like that around us today. Somebody's calling me like crazy. Thanks. Great. I'm sorry. I can't answer right now. I'm kind of busy. You guys want me to answer? I could answer. So individualism isn't going to save us. Collectivism isn't going to save us. What is? Well, today I want to invite you to consider what Scripture invites us into. And the way I'll I'll paint this is the way C.S. Lewis painted this, and that is you're invited into a dance, a dance. And let's go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, just starting with verse 1. I'm really thankful for Tim Keller and his work on this, kind of pulling this together. And it's such a profound truth. I just wanted to share it with us today and consider as we start looking at who God is, how that can actually affect our lives in a deep and meaningful way, how it can transform us. So let's look Mark chapter one. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, behold, I send a messenger before your face. I will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. I'll just pause there and point out the fact that Mark wastes no time 
to introduce us to Jesus, he starts right there in the first verse and says, Jesus is the Christ and he's the son of God. Christ, right, which is Christos, which is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who's going to come and save Israel from her captors and rule and reign. So this, this is their source of hope, but it's a national kind of a hope, right? But he also calls Jesus something that up until now wasn't widely used at all. This term, the Son of God. The Son of God, right there in the beginning of Mark's gospel. He makes no, moans, no bones about it. This Jesus is God in the flesh. When John the Baptist says, prepare the way for the what? For the, the Lord. That's that word Jehovah. This is, this is Jehovah God come to save us. So Mark is introducing us very clearly to the fact that Jesus Christ is not only the Messiah, but he's God in the flesh. And this is what he goes on to say. After he introduces us, he tells us this amazing story. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to be baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Just like Daryl led us to do here in worship today. Now, John was clothed in camel's hair, wore a leather belt. I don't know why Mark is so concerned with his fashion, but he is, and he says it. Wear a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not fit to bend down and untie. I've baptized you with high-quality H2O, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In these days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, don't miss this, immediately, he saw the heavens being open, torn open, and the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So we see this picture of the very nature of God on display. The dove, right? Which Mark, which this is a unique picture. Up until now in scripture, we haven't really seen this. Where did Mark get this idea of a dove? What story is he telling? Well, the only place in the, in the culture that he's writing to that this dove was ever mentioned was back in Genesis, the creation of the world. You guys remember Genesis 1? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And then it says, and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the water. And God said, let there be light. So you see this, this word, the Spirit of God hovered. Well, that's also the Hebrew word fluttered. And it was kind of confusing for original Jewish audiences. So rabbis in the Targums just explained it very clearly. They said, and the Holy Spirit fluttered over creation like a dove. So Mark is pointing back to the Targums. He's pointing back to the Genesis story. Why is he pointing back to that? Why does that matter? He's saying the triune God was at work creating this world. You see the Father saying, let there be light. You see his word go forward, and you see his spirit hovering over the water. And he's pointing back to that to draw our attention to what's happening at baptism. Because as Jesus comes up out of the water, what do we see? We see the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove. And we hear the Father's voice say, this is my beloved son. I love him. I am well pleased with him. Just, just a quick note. What had Jesus done up till now? Nothing. He hadn't done anything. Why is the father so pleased with him? Because it's not based on work. It's based on what? Who he is, his relationship with the father. So you see the triune God Active in the creation of the world, and you see this same triune God active in the recreation, the redemption of the world that's starting in the ministry of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. And you say, yeah, that's great, but why, is that, why does that matter? Why is, why is that important? Well, I'll tell you why um, in my notes here. The Trinity, this concept of the Trinity, this concept of a triune God, 
it's, it's mysterious, isn't it? It's kind of baffling. As we try to think about it, it's not something that just sits. The more you let it just rest on your cranial tissue, the more it marinates in, the more questions you seem to have, right? Wait, how does that work? And so I'm just going to briefly explain it because I believe it's going to radically transform our lives today if we really get this. The idea of the Trinity is that God is one eternally existing in three persons. It's different than tritheism. Tritheism said God is three. There's three gods that kind of work together in harmony. And then there's this other version that's called unipersonalism that says God is one, one person. He just kind of operates in these different modes. That's often called modalism. So there's these broken views of God's nature, that God is three somehow, that God is just one somehow. But Trinitarian view of God says God is one, totally one God, in three distinct persons within that one God. I know I grew up in a version of Christianity called oneness Pentecostalism. And so we preached a version of this over here called modalism. And it was interesting because you'd have questions as a kid like, who did Jesus pray to? And they'd say, uh, to himself. He prayed to himself because he's modeling for us what prayer's like. And that was really confusing. It didn't quite answer the question for me. He asked your Sunday school teacher, like, why did God create the world? Well, God created the world because he was alone. He was lonely, just kind of floating up there, you know, in the blogosphere. And, and he said, you know, I wish I had somebody to share my life with. I wish I had somebody who could give me love. And that's why God created us. Have, any, have you guys ever heard a version of that? God was lonely, so God created us. But this version of the triune God will totally transform your view of why you're even created, your view of reality, okay? And it's because God is not more fundamentally three than one. He's not more fundamentally one than three. But there's one God, three persons who know and love each other and hold each other at the center of their hearts. So Jesus is baptized. We see it right here in the passage if you look at Mark when Jesus is baptized, the Father envelops him in love. And what's he say? You are my beloved son. I love you. I'm well pleased with you. And his spirit descends on him and covers him with power. We're catching a glimpse into the interior life of the triune God that's been happening for all eternity. Like in this moment, the reason this is so powerful is this is literally a glimpse into the heart of reality, the meaning of life, the the essence of the universe. According to scripture, Father, Son, and Spirit glorify one another. Jesus says this in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. He says, Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Each person in the triune God glorifies one another. Now, I love the way C.S. Lewis puts this in, in this book, and so I'm going to read a quote to you. I threw it up on the screen as well if you'd like to follow along. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating active activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And then uh, Cornelius Plantinga he adds on to this. He says, Note how the Father, Son, and Spirit glorify one another. The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being in constant movement of overture and acceptance. Each person envelops and encircles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. Think about that. You use that word glory. We're talking about glorying. That's not really a word we use every day. You're not just like, you don't go to work and tell your manager, hey, man, I, I wish you'd glorify me a little more. You know, it's a, it's a random word, kind of an archaic word. What does it mean? Well, to glorify something or someone is when you find it beautiful for what it is in itself. I remember um, when I was in school and college, I took a film class. And the cool thing about film classes is that they expose you to films you would never probably watch on your own. Like, um, 
I remember all these 1960s and 70s classics from foreign countries, like uh, The Seventh Seal, and they're describing to me Ingmar Berg something, and, <laughs> and, and how amazing his art is. And I'm just sitting there like, yeah, 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 I'll watch the movie, just give me the grade, man. Yeah, I'll write the report, I'll say what you want me to say. What's, what's amazing about that is somewhere in there in that film school, I started to find those movies truly beautiful. I started to study like Akira Kurosawa and The Seven Samurai and Throne of Blood and some of these old black and white movies to where now I have Hulu Prime because it's got the Criterion collection in it. And any time I get a chance and, and the wife and kids are gone and I'm at home and I get a chance to watch a movie, guess what I'm watching? Not Die Hard with a Vengeance. I'm in there watching, you know, some Igmar Bergman classic or some Akira Kurosawa film. I'm not watching it for a grade anymore. What happened? Well, see, there was a time where I was using those movies for what I got out of them, right? But something happened in my heart where I started to find them beautiful just for what they were in themselves. The art, the storytelling, the narrative, the cinematography. You start to find it beautiful, and all of a sudden you find yourself enjoying it, glorying in it, just watching it for what it is. And it is, it's when you find a person or a thing beautiful in that way that you want to love and serve them unconditionally. But to say, one of the things we hear people say a lot is, yeah, actually we don't hear them say it. I hear this in my own heart when I go to serve somebody. I hear, yeah, I'll love them, I'll serve them, as long as I get something in return. As long as, you know, I'll do it because I get love out of it, because I get acceptance out of it. That's not actually loving and serving them. It's serving yourself through them. See, what happens in our life oftentimes in community is that we basically try to get people to orbit around us. We are self-centered people. Well, at least I am. I don't know about you guys. I'll admit that I'm a self-centered person. And one of the things I often find myself doing is trying to get people to orbit around me, to to live for me. Because even if we look unselfish, there's, there's some people that I know that look very unselfish. They volunteer down at the homeless shelter. They help people. There's some people that just can't say no. You know you can ask them to help you with that thing because you know they're going to say yes to you, right? You're like, oh, you're so unselfish. Not always. Not always. There's some people that look unselfish on the outside, but why are they doing it? Why can't they say no? Oftentimes it's because they're craving the acceptance, the approval. They're craving the, the kind of love and, and they want to feel needed. And so it's a fear-based kind of motivation that on the outside looks very unselfish and selfless but on the inside is actually really selfish. There was this uh, episode on Lie to Me. Anybody see Lie to Me? It kind of got discontinued. Okay. I was trying to pick an example that would relate to everybody, and apparently I have not picked the wisest choice. But there was this episode where this guy gets murdered. I knew if I said that, I'd get everybody's attention. Murdered. And, and they're like, who did it? Well, it's, it's the maid at this really rich guy's house. And so they're trying to figure out who would want to kill this maid. Well, it's definitely not the rich guy. He's the most altruistic guy in the world. He gives his money away. I don't even know why he has money. I mean, like, how does he have it? He just keeps giving it away. He's such an altruistic person. But what they found out as they started to examine him in psychology and cross-examination is he was actually a narcissist. And the way that he lived out his narcissism was by being radically altruistic. Giving his money away, doing all this stuff was actually a very narcissistic tendency for him because he loved and craved the acceptance and the appraisal and and people calling him up at the big banquet and saying, man, that guy's amazing. Let's give him an award. Hand clap. We love you. You're a leader in our community. He loved that. He lived for that. So he, he gave and he served. And he did all these things, but it wasn't for the people he was serving, was it? It was for himself. They were a means to the end of him glorifying himself. He's not orbiting around them. He's orbiting around himself. He's trying to get everybody to orbit around him so that he can find the life that he's craving. Some of us look very unselfish from the outside, but oftentimes there's still a root of selfishness in there. And that's far from glorifying others.
To glorify others is to unconditionally love and serve them. Not because we get anything, but we just love and appreciate who they are in themselves. And what we see in the triune God is this. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each just so centered on the others. They're adoring and serving and loving the others because they're each giving glorifying love to one another, God is infinitely happy. How many of you guys would like to have infinite happiness? Yeah. The funny thing is, oftentimes I think we chase happiness as if it's something to be grasped instead of realizing that happiness is a byproduct of something else. Happiness is a byproduct of loving others and serving others. But when we seek happiness, what do we often do? We step on others in order to get it, don't we? We're seeking our own life. Imagine, imagine you adore somebody. Uh, those of you young people who are in love. Imagine you just adore somebody for exactly who they are. You love them. You find them beautiful. Now, you're ready to like wrap your whole life around them. Give them everything. Isn't it sublime when you realize that that person also adores you? Loves you? Is ready to wrap their life around you? To give up everything for you? What an amazing truth. Yet, how many of us actually ever experience that in life? Some of us in marriage, we experience that at moments, but so often we still fall short of it. But that is what God has enjoyed all of eternity. Each member of the Trinity loves and adores and glorifies and serves the other. So God is happy, and reality is a dance. C.S. Lewis says this. He finishes the quote. What does it all matter? It matters more than anything else in the world. The whole dance or drama or pattern of the three-personal life is to be played out in each of us. Joy, power, peace, eternal life are a great fountain of energy and a, and a beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. I want, I want you to imagine something with me. You know, So imagine everyone saying, I want you to orbit around me. I want, because that's what selfishness is, right? Self-centeredness is like, hey, I want to be the center, and I want everybody to orbit around me. Imagine if we got invited to a school play right up here on the stage, and they were like, guys, this is going to be called You Got Served. And we want you to just come and enjoy as our students show you their dance they've been practicing. So we come in, and we're ready to watch the dance. And you've got five or 10 or, or 50 kids up on stage. And they're all standing there, and the lights, the lights come up, and the music starts, and we're ready to start seeing them dance. And they all just kind of stand there and nervously look around at each other. And, and one guy goes, come on. No, you come on. Come on, move around me, dance around me. No, you dance around me. That would be the worst dance ever, wouldn't it? Just like everybody trying to be in the center, bumping into one another, nobody like actually ready to dance around another person. What a, what a broken picture of reality that would be. Yet, if we look out at our culture, sometimes even in our own churches, and often within our own hearts, that's the kind of dance that we see, isn't it? It's a dance where we're often saying, dance around me, I want to be the center. I want everybody to be around me. The Trinity is totally different. It's not self-centered, but mutually self-giving love. No person in the Trinity says, move around me. Each one lovingly orbits the others. And if that's true, if that's ultimate reality, then think of the explosive implications. If this world was made by a triune God, then what's life about? It's about loving, selfless relationships of love and self-giving and service. That's, that's what ultimate reality is. Your view of God is going to shape how you live. So if somebody believes in no God, then what's love to them? Well, it's just a bundle of impulses, you know, that are there. It's chemical in nature, and it's just there to, you know, get you to put your body parts in the right place to keep our race going forward. That's, that's what love is about. It's an illusion. Or if you believe in a unipersonal God, then God's not a God of love originally, is he? He never experienced love until he created somebody that he could extend that love to. But if you see God as a trinity, as a triune God, Father encircling the Son, loving Him, glorifying Him, 
And, but the son doing that right back to the father and the spirit getting in the mix. And all of a sudden you see this dance of love and self-giving. If that's the nature of God, what does that call us to do? How does that call us to live? You got to ask yourself like, man, why did God even create us if he had all that love? I mean, because the love I give God is pretty broken. It's not nearly as powerful. It's not nearly as pure as the love he already has within himself. But God created us. The only answer that that could be there is that God must have created us not to get joy, but to give it to us, to invite us into the dance, to say, I love you. I want to dance around you. I want to give my life for you. And if you'll glorify me, if you'll live for me, if you'll dance around me, if you'll find me beautiful for who I am in myself, then you'll step into the dance that you were made for. You're made not just to believe in God, not just to pray to God to get stuff. When you go through trials, when you go through situations, you pray to somehow get some direction or some provision. You're made not just for that low reality, but to center your entire life, to to walk in relationship with God, to serve him unconditionally. That's where you find joy. That's where you find life. That's what the dance is about. So question for you, are you dancing? Are you in the dance? Or do you just believe that God is out there somewhere? Do you just pray when you're in trouble? Do you just look for someone to orbit around you? If life is a divine dance, then you need more than anything else to be in it. That's what you were built for. You were made to enter into a divine dance with the triune God. But how do we get into it? How do we join in the dance? And that's where the good news of the gospel comes in. And um, to get into that, let's just read the last two verses of this passage. Mark chapter 1, let's read 12 and 13. It says here, right after Jesus came up out of the water and the Father said, with you I'm well pleased. It says, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness for 40 days. Where he was tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals. Verse 12, the Spirit leads Jesus to be tempted in the wilderness. And Mark is just, Mark's a master storyteller. As I read this, I, I just love it because Mark's drawing this parallel between creation. The triune God creates everything. What do we see happen in Genesis right after God creates everything? Adam and Eve are in the garden. What happens? They're tempted, aren't they? Immediately. Well, now we see the triune God recreating the world through the gospel, through what Jesus is about to do. And Jesus is baptized, and he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted. And then Mark throws in this, this phrase, by the, he's, he's hanging out with the wild animals. You got to say, like, what is that about? Why is, why is Mark talking about wild animals? Well, you got to understand, who's Mark's audience at this time? This is the earliest gospel written. And the people who have identified with Christ are being persecuted like crazy. They're in the Colosseums. They're being torn apart by lions, being thrown to the wild animals. And Mark says, look, the very same temptation that you're facing when your faith is put on trial and you're given an, here's an opportunity to recant. Here's an opportunity to, to leave the dance, so to speak, to just, to just live your own life, to go your own way, to figure out a way to survive, right? When you're tempted, remember that Jesus Christ was tempted too. He was tempted in every way like we are. Satan comes to Jesus and says, hey, man, listen. You can do this on your own. You can do this your own way. You don't need God's power. You can trust in your own power. You don't need to dance around the Father and the Spirit. You don't need to submit to their plan. I'll give you everything that you came here to get without the cross. You can have this without pain. You can have this in your own plan. Provide for yourself. Pick up this rock, right? This is temptation that Satan brings to him. And Mark, Mark doesn't say, hey, so Satan is just this like kind of idea, this concept left over from medieval Christianity, does he? No, he says there is, there is a real enemy. There's a real battle going on for your soul, 
for your belief. Guys, as, as we leave here today, we're going to be entering into that battlefield. We're going to be tempted to believe falsities about who God is and what he's done for us and who we are as a result. And we'll live out of what we really believe, whether we buy the truth or whether we believe a lie. And Satan comes and he tempts him. I just want to make a point here. Just like, you know, it's the same point that was in one of my favorite movies, The Usual Suspects. Kaiser Soze says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was getting the world to believe he didn't exist. You guys remember that? And it's so true, man. So many of us, I think, growing up in Christianity, we hear about the devil, and we just don't really like to talk about it that much or teach on it. But it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if there is a God who is loving and powerful and spiritual and invisible and those kinds of things, doesn't it stand to reason that there could be a a devil, Satan, a, a source of evil in the world? And Mark makes no bones about it. He says, there is an enemy. He's out for your soul. There's a, there's a battleground. And temptation isn't impersonal. There's an actual enemy. If you believe in God, it's reasonable to believe in him. Satan is the chief of these evil forces. And he tempts us away from the dance. He tempted Adam. He tempted Jesus. The devil is tempting you, and he's saying things like, hey, man, this idea of self-giving love, that's stupid. Why would you give up your rights? Why would you center your life on somebody else? Why would you trust God? That's a bad idea. Don't do that. Go your own way. Find your own plan. Live according to your own power, your own purposes in life. That's the lie that he comes at, with, uh, comes at us with all the time. But in that moment in the garden... We see God told Adam, obey me about the tree. Don't eat the tree or you'll die. Why was that the temptation? You ever wonder that? Like, why didn't God explain to him what would, like, here's why I'm setting this temptation up. God doesn't really say. But if you obey God just because you understand the benefits to you, how it's going to benefit you if you obey him, then if you're not careful, you'd enter into that static life, wouldn't you? You would just be using God for what you get. Obedience would just be a means to the end of you being blessed, to the end of you getting something from God at the end of the day. And God is saying, obey me just because you love me and you'll truly live. How did, it, how did our great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, do at that test? Did they, did they pass the test? No way. At least five of you shook your heads no. You know. They did not pass the test. We do not pass the test. And Satan keeps on tempting. And the same temptation came to Jesus. It's a, Jesus faced the same temptation Adam did to step out of orbit around the Father and the Spirit Satan's like, don't, don't circle your life around them. It's a stupid idea to give your life. Do you really think they're worth it? Provide for yourself. Protect yourself. Follow your own plan. Glorify yourself. He's tempted them. And he, he tempted Jesus for the rest of Jesus' life. If you think about it, at the end of Jesus' life, it climaxes in another garden. It's not the Garden of Eden. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, a, it's the anti-garden of the Garden of Eden, if you will. And God says to Jesus, he says to his son, obey me about the tree, and you will die. Obey me about the tree, and you will die. And what did Jesus do? Jesus did. Jesus fought the battle for us. Jesus came, and he served us. He came in the power of the Holy Spirit, submitted to his father, and he served us, and he fought the battle for us, and he died on a cross, and he was exonerated and resurrected from the grave. That's the good news of the gospel, but why did he do that? He did that to invite you into the dance. He did that to help pull you away from the static life that so many of us find ourselves in, the self-centered existence the self-focused life that many of us have fallen prey to. And we keep hoping that 
If we're just a little more self-centered, if we keep, maybe happiness isn't here, maybe it's over there. Maybe if I get this relationship, maybe if I get that raise, maybe if, 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 then I'll get the thing I'm craving. And God sent his son to remind us, everything you're seeking is already at home. You have it right now. You're loved. You're accepted. You're provided for in me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the God of the universe, as it says in Zephaniah 3, dances over you with rejoicing because of what Christ has done? Do you believe when you're tempted that what Jesus says, or excuse me, what the Father says of Jesus is true about you? I want you to close your eyes for a second, and we're going to come down and take communion here in a minute, but I want to I say something over you. The Father delights in you. What the Father said about Jesus in baptism is true of you. If you are in Christ today, if you've believed the gospel, if you've submitted your life to Jesus Christ as Lord, then what is true of him is true of you. The Father looks down on you right now and says, you are my beloved child. I love you. I'm well pleased with you. You don't have to live a static life anymore. I've come dancing around you, dancing over you, inviting you into life. Are you ready to stop trying to be the center? Are you ready to submit and join the dance, to join into life? So this sermon, we basically walk through these, just saw the picture up there of the tree, Ivan. We walk through, what do I do? Oftentimes, I find myself living a very selfish existence. I'm lonely. Why? Because I live in this very individualized society, and I feel like I have to provide for myself. The false gospel that I'm believing is that somehow more selfishness, or maybe if we move over to collectivism, maybe that'll solve my problems. And that's all based on our view of God, this broken view that God is either non-existent or he's unipersonal. And he created us for his own selfish reasons, to get something from us. But the truth about God is that God is a fountain of love. God is a dance of grace that he's invited us into his, his very nature. We're partakers, the Bible says, of the divine nature. That we're invited to join into this dance of self-giving love. In Jesus Christ, here's the true gospel that we get to believe. Jesus Christ came inviting us into the dance He danced around us. He served. When we say you got served, he served the Father. He served, he submitted to the Holy Spirit. He said, I always do the will of my Father. Everything he does, as you read through Mark or Luke or the Gospels, you see he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he lived a righteous life. He did that for us. He fought our battles for us, and he died in our place to invite us into the dance. So the questions that I have for you to answer as we take communion are an identity question and a mission question. How is your life static and self-focused? If you're honest, what are some ways that you see in your own story? Man, I'm pretty broken. I'm pretty self-focused here. This week I did this. I, I struggled in this area. And then ask yourself, well, if the gospel's true, how does the Father see you in Christ? How does the Father see you in Christ? How does, how does that truth set you free from this static, self-centered life to join the dance? Like, how could your life look if you actually joined this dance that you've been invited into? Free from the self-centered brokenness. Free to, to give your life away because you know that the Father who created the world, the Son who came to redeem you, the Spirit who's empowering you are dancing around you, literally, giving you life, providing for your needs, so you can give your life away and find an even greater life in submission to him. So we're going to answer these questions in very personal ways over the next few minutes through communion. Daryl's going to come lead us in a song to close us out, and, um, and we're going to be dismissed. I'm going to say a prayer over you right now. We've got two communion tables. If you're new here, there's a lot of new faces. Um, just want to let you know we come down in groups of two or three normally. This is how we end the service. 
and we take communion together, and we just kind of answer these questions as we take communion to really help work the gospel into our own hearts, to disciple one another. We don't want to just come hear a sermon and go home unchanged. We want to take time to remember the sacrifice and the love of the, of, of the triune God for us. So um, we've got two communion tables. Come on down, take communion. If you are not a believer or you're, you, you don't want to take communion for any reason, that's fine. Just feel free to hang back, and we'll dismiss in a song in about 10 minutes. Um, let me pray over you. Father, thank you so much that you love us. Uh, the greatest truth of who we are is that we are loved by you. And thank you that you're not just a father who loves us, but you sent your son to come get us. That at great cost to you, you purchased us back from the dead. And you didn't purchase us back from the dead so we could just get our lives together and act really moral and pure and show up on Sundays and, and cross our T's and dot our I's. But you sent your son to resurrect us back from the dead so that we could experience life in this new identity as children of God, as a family as missionaries to the, the world you've sent us to and, and, and as, as a people who are called to serve as we've been served. You sent your son to serve us and now we're free to serve one another and find life, not in making sure we're getting served and taking care of our own needs, but to find life in serving one another throughout the week, to find ways to pour our life out as you poured your life out for us. And find that the more we pour out, the more you fill us up with your life. I pray that that would become a greater reality in every one of our lives, whether we're visiting from another state or, or city or whether we're here embedded in this community, that we would become a people who are known by this joyful service and outpouring love that people see in our lives. That a world would look on and say, what is different about them? I don't get it. And they don't seem to just be giving and serving for something that they get. But they're doing it because they've been given everything. I can tell there's a difference. There's something different about them. I pray that would be our testimony as it was the early churches. Have your way. Speak to us in the next few moments as we take communion. In Jesus' name, amen.